All right. Well, welcome back, everyone. We are the MI guys. We hey. got director Casey Jackson here. Hello. Annie Calais doing a dance. And myself, John Gilbert, introing us into today's topic, which I believe is responding to the types of talk or strategically reflecting or something along those lines. Tammy, if you would take it up from here. So uh, today's topic is responding to the types of talk. So we can launch off wherever we feel like launching off at. Casey, go ahead. All right. Well, there's I, the things that I think of is I really wish I would have given this so much more attention or would have known how significant this was when I first started learning motivational interviewing. Um, I think the thing that totally intrigued me as a neophyte in the MI world was just the permission to be able to go so deep into empathy um, and just be able to re-engage with people and person-centered and all the things that as a bleeding heart social worker, I was so excited and still to this day love to be able to do. And and those are the things I love teaching and talking about the most. And even in my early days of teaching like the ORs and, and the DEERS and the RITAS and all the different acronyms and MI. And I look back now and I just wish that I would have had a brain that would have absorbed the whole construct of strategically responding because it just is so powerful, not just for the effectiveness, but for the efficiency of motivational interviewing. And so for me, that's why I love talking about strategically responding to language because it really does increase the efficacy and the efficiency of dialogue, um, especially in an MI-based conversation. Tracking language and knowing why am I responding at this point in time. So just generally speaking, especially through the pure MI lens, we're talking about sustained talk and change talk, resistance talk, commitment talk, like the four types of talk. Um, that we tend to pay attention to. And knowing when you hear it, how to respond to it is such a different concept than responding to content. And like I say, we have all been so trained to listen to content. We listen for content, we ask questions about content, give, tell me more about the content. And yep. the more you tell me about the content, the more opinions I have, and the more thoughts I have about how you're supposed to deal with it and, and do, do it differently. And it is, it is almost like learning a foreign language to listen to the types of uh, talk and then learn how to respond to it accordingly. It just, my brain did not naturally and normally work that way. Um, I want to respond from basically an egocentric perspective to what I'm curious about, what track I want to follow. And even in an MI adherent way, I could try to, I, I knew I was being leading at times like younger in my MI career. Um, and I really didn't understand how to strategically orchestrate language. Then you fast forward 20 years, 15 years where John and I are working with Dr. Susan Butterworth uh, and Allie Hall on the MICA and listening to Susan Butterworth. It was so helpful for me to hear from somebody that's so wise in the MI world and in other ways and in research say, she still maintains that learning to strategically respond to language is one of the most advanced complex skills in motivational interviewing. And it's like, gosh, and, and I, it just was not in the forefront of my training, you know, for the first five, six years that I was training MI. I'd, I'd teach the darn C and the darn C and the darn cat, but as far as understanding change talk and sustain talk, but really understanding the power of strategically responding, that just started opening up so many more doors for me. 
Mm -hmm. Well, and even in the beginning too, we we like to show like a very famous video in MI called the Nonverbal Man uh, that I believe you can find on on YouTube now. Um, and Dr. William Miller didn't necessarily have this on his radar. The research wasn't necessarily out when he would sit down with someone and just be non-judgmentally curious of why they do what they do and what if anything they'd like to see different in their lives and just interview someone about their motives quite literally. Uh, hence why he called it that. And then he would probably and other people do things a little differently for more efficiency and maybe more effectiveness. Um, now that we know that we can listen to ling language differently and it affects the behavior change differently thanks to uh, one of his you know, uh, students, Dr. Teresa Moyers and how she took that kind of uh, baton and really developed MI that much more with the types of talk versus just this spirit of kind of a a Carl Rogers uh, way of being with people that was then starting to reinforce different kinds of language either haphazardly or not necessarily consciously that then Teresa Moyers with William Miller really started to get more aware what are we reinforcing when I ask this when I reflect that what type of language is that and what does it matter and I think that extra level of mindfulness has now got MI that much more um, attention and can be that much more potent in how you pay attention to it. It just takes that much higher degree of thinking at the same time. But the, the thing I wanted to bring Tammy, you in here about too, in relativity to Casey and I, you know, going through training and then seeing all uh, some, some colleagues you used to be a part of with, with types of talk and learning that, what would you say it's like when you're coming in as a, as a person that's learning MI and seeing other people learn MI? how did the types of talk kind of hit you or how difficult or easy are they, were they for you when you first kind of got involved with that? I was just wondering kind of your experience of that coming into it. I mean, I'm gonna have you hold that real quick. What I wanna do is I just wanna, I just for the listeners, I wanna really be clear about the types of talk because we're talking about it second nature because we're so clear about it. But Tim, I'm gonna give you a, a chance to think about what was it like at Touchmark when I started talking about the types of language and things like that. So again, I just rattled off the four of them, the resistance talk, sustain talk, change talk, commitment talk. But for those of you, just for a refresher, or if you've never even heard that terminology before, um, I just want to say resistance talk, that language, is when somebody is focused exclusively outside of themselves. Mm -hmm. And when we look at it from a physics perspective, it just means that there's tension between two things. It's this stupid computer. It's that stupid leader of that country. It's it's the, you know, it's the bus driver's fault. It's my mom's fault that I'm late. It's that you didn't give me a raise. That's why, you know, anytime our energy is focused outside the self, that's what we look at as resistance talk, the tension between two things. When it goes internal, we've got reasons why we're stuck. And in MI, that's called sustained talk. I might like smoking weed. I just want to stick with that. That's status quo or, or, or stuck talk and or excuses. And that's all part of what we call sustained talk and motivation. So that all falls in kind of that silo of language. Change talk is the desire for things to be better. Mm -hmm. The need for things to be better, the reasons for things to change, any of that energy, why I would want to be happier and healthier, any language around that is change talk. And commitment talk is I'm going to do it. So I just want to, when we're talking about strategically responding, the three of us are talking about how do you respond to that type of language? And we'll get even further into that, but I just want to lay that out there right in the beginning of the podcast to tee it up more for kind of when, when Tammy heard about all these things. So we'll pick up from there. 
what was your kind of naive brain from an MI perspective when you, you know, when you were, that was brought to the forefront of your thinking? Well, thanks for also laying that out because I do think that's helpful for everyone too. But um, as far as when I was learning it, it's, it's really quite a difficult concept, honestly, because you're trained to listen to content. I'm, I am as a social person, I would say I'm definitely much more of a, a social extrovert. I listen for details. I like to find out people's favorite song and why it means so much to them. And I look for people's favorite desserts. And if I'm able to, I make them their favorite dessert. Like I am just naturally inclined to listen to content. And so um, in my previous work, we were also the same way. So it is a completely different mind shift to stop listening to content and to start listening to the types of talk. Because also with listening to content, it's really easy to get caught into, again, this is verbiage that we talk about in our trainings, but it's easy to get caught into the trees, the things that don't really matter in the conversation, but you get caught in those because you're talking about um, the fa someone's favorite dessert and how they don't wanna you know, give up ice cream. Um, when in reality, what's really important to them most likely is that they want to be healthier and, and you're not getting to the root of the whole issue. So yeah, I found it to be kind of difficult at first, but yeah, it takes time to get used to that concept. This is too, or Casey, there's two things I know that uh, are very powerful here to talk about. One is filtering that content and really listening deeper for the types of language regardless of the content mm -hmm. and i know you you've brought up in training something to the degree of you can kind of scribble while also hearing someone you can kind of scribble notes you can scribble things down on a piece of paper it's not like you're losing the content but you're paying attention to this other thing too and it's like this kind of dual ability to hear that they're talking about how much life really sucks right now because their health isn't where they want it to be that's implying that there could be some other kind of language that language itself though is a particular kind of language in that case you know it's stuck talk it's sustained talk it's reasons why things are the way they are and then i'm hearing as as tammy was just saying the potential for happier and healthier well i'm hearing the possibility for motivation type change talk Right. And it's that ability to be that mindful and that aware that really does up the game of, of strategy in the moment. But it's really that ability to hear in a respectful way. Casey, I think it was you or someone along these lines of hearing the wah, 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 as you might say, of Charlie yeah. Brown's uh, teacher is like the example I'll give. But you're you're not trying to be disrespectful in saying that, but you're just hearing what's most helpful for this person to pay attention to. And it's actually more respectful to listen in this way when you're in a behavior change conversation than just listening for all the voyeuristic things that are interesting to you or things that your brain is trying to figure out, but really pay attention to what's the best bang for buck for this person. So I know there's that thing. And then the thing that I would love for you to expand on Casey at some point when it makes sense for you, is this an analogy you came up with with the fish and I think we have, I haven't heard it for a long time, but it helped a lot of people um, that that can be a good visual to start thinking about this when you're in the flow of conversation and getting all these words so fast. It's like, how do I do this? Yeah, I'll weave that in. I, so there's, and part of the analogy actually goes to Tracy Wilson. 
some uh, individual that I just have so much respect and have a great relationship adore out of Division of Oak Rehab in Washington State. So she's the one who originally came up with it. We'll get into that um, as a participant. I was thinking to bridge some of John, what you're talking about and give kind of concrete structure around it is if we're talking to somebody, I think about like the CPS video that we show, you know, I hit my kid video. Um, and if we actually gave words to what he may have said or what he may have done um, to his child or anybody may do. So, you know, that little brat was completely out of control. Um, he talked back to me, I grabbed him by the arm and I swat him on the butt three times. And it's like, you're going to listen to me, you know, and then I, and then I kind of shoved him in the corner and said, you need to sit here and think about what you've done. My writing reflex is getting triggered. And I'm like, what do you mean you swatted him three times and then shoved him in the corner? Like, that's what I want to pay attention to. And, and there's nothing wrong with paying attention to that. It's not going to affect the behavior change. So holding somebody accountable or confronting them or saying, don't you touch my son, you know, whatever comes out of that, I'm not going to say it's wrong. But when you're listening for language differently, it's he's focusing outside of himself. And if I'm trying to pull change talk out of that, what I can assume is he wants to be a good father. So if I'm paying attention to language, I'm trying to guess about how does he feel and what does he want? That is strategically responding to language that may be at the forefront of the dialogue or it may be hidden within the dialogue. This is strategically responding. For me to say, if you swat your child three times, that is considered child abuse. I can say that, that's giving information. It doesn't mean it's gonna change behavior. It doesn't mean it won't change behavior. There is a likelihood it will generate a defensive response. So this is strategically responding. Am I aware enough to know that when I open my mouth, it's gonna have an impact? If I say something like, you get so frustrated when you feel like you're not being listened to, you know, if there was another way to deal with it, of course you deal with it in a way that wasn't so physically aggressive, but you really do want respect from your son. That is really important to you. And some of the things you've been trying feels like that respect isn't coming in a way that you'd like it to come. That's responding to how he feels and what he wants. So it doesn't mean that because I say that it solves the problem, but those are strategic responses. There's a reason why I'm trying to highlight those parts of the dialogue that are either spoken or unspoken. So this is what we look at strategically responding. And what we know, what research is pretty clear with is if we reflect or focus on language about people feeling frustrated and they feel more heard and understood and we go higher empathy with that, the resistance or the tension tends to start to deescalate. It tends to start to moderate itself when people feel heard and understood. What they do is then they lean into why they did what they did, which is more the excuses or why they're doing what they're doing, which is more status quo. So we know by just being higher in empathy and responding strategically that we're going to get less combative language and more of just kind of that status quo language or excuses or rationale for why they're doing what they're doing. So we know how to convert that, that tension into a different type of language, which then goes from externally focused to a little bit more internally focused. That's a strategic response. And the analogy I've been using lately for like the last year now has been, okay, if we talk about ambivalence as two sides of the coin, as uh, two sides, like, um, like a scale, 
then it can be two sides of a coin too. So we always tend to put our hands up, you know, side to side and say, you know, one side's sustain talk, one side's change talk. And what I've been talking about is compressing it into a coin because that has two sides, which means there's heads and tails. And what I tell people with strategic responses is if I have a quarter lane in front of you and it's tails up, what's on the other side? Well, heads. Everybody says heads. And I said, but you can't see it. How do you know? It's the same thing with strategically responding. Even if they only give you one side of the coin, the other side exists whether or not they're talking about it. Even if you can't see it, you conceptually know the other side of the coin exists. So when somebody says that they're struggling, the flip side of the coin is you don't want to be struggling. <laughs> that, that's a really rudimentary way to think about it. I'm depressed. Oh, they don't want to be depressed. Um, and that's a really basic way to think about it. You can get more complex in your reflections, but you can either say you're really feeling depressed and they're like, exactly, that's how I feel. They're going to continue to talk about that. Or you'd like to find a way where you weren't so depressed. That'd be your best case scenario. Yeah, I wish I didn't feel so depressed. It's literally, do you pay attention to how they feel or do you want to start to convert it over towards what they want? And they'll give you feedback. The whole point is that those are strategic responses. That's not just random responses based on language because they hit their child or because they came in late or because they're giving me excuses. Instead of me just reacting to that language, I have a strategic response, knowing what's predictable and probable, even if it's not 100%, it's fairly predictable and probable. We can respond this way, which orchestrates this type of, type of an outcome or a response. One of my favorite tools that, um, again, when I started going to trainings from you, was actually feeling because of that. When you're trying to wrap your brain around this heads and tails concept, it's, it's sometimes hard to process, I guess. I don't know. For me, sometimes it was hard to process, but it made so much sense to just look at the feelings wheel. And, you know, again, when someone says they're feeling sad or something means they want some form of happy or when they're feeling lonely, they want to feel more connected. Um, and anyways, that was just a tool that I always really appreciated. I, I don't know if I could Google that and see if that's out there. I don't even know. There's some versions of it. I know that there was a, a individual we were working with at, um, I knew he was a therapist at Lutheran Community Services in Spokane, Washington, and he had modified a version from something else he'd seen. Um, but I'm sure that there's other, his version is probably out there or someone else has a version of the feelings and needs wheels as well too. Yeah, but that was really helpful. Yeah, you know, that's very true. And, and to, to help with this too, for visuals, I just want to cue this up. I don't want to lose the, the fish analogy that I do think would be helpful to bring up at some point, but I think what kind of comes in to maybe transition of this visual help is something that we have in the motivational interview and competency assessment, the MICA, to see a visual, particularly of what Casey's talking about and Tammy, what you were talking about, kind of flipping it of like, what would that sound like for those of you listening? What would that look like? And Casey, you can, can maybe kind of walk us through uh, this. But Tammy, yeah, and real quick, I just want to, just so people understand, the motivational interview and competency assessment is a fidelity tool to measure motivational interviewing. So that's one that the IFIOC team did come up with. So John, as you're queuing this up, and I know that um, if anybody's listening to this, it's probably podcast, but for the, those of you that do the webcast and you're watching through webcast, which is part of our gold membership, I'll walk you through what John's putting on the screen. Um, before we dive straight into that, I'm going to, I'll pick up what John was asking about. I'm going to use a couple different analogies. So any of you picture people or visual learners out there, you're going to like these. <laughs> Originally in motivational interviewing, and still a lot of people use this analogy with um, 
change talk, one form of it is kind of gathering a bouquet of flowers as you're walking along. And the way I look at it with some of the complex issues that a lot of us listen to is it's like if you're walking through somebody's garden and so much of it is dead or not thriving, it doesn't mean when you're doing reflective listening, it's not strategic to reflect every single thing that you see. That's not strategic. What's strategic is either to pay attention to what caused some of the destruction, or it's strategic to pay attention to how they feel about the destruction, or it's strategic to pay attention to where there's some sprouts that are starting to spring up in spite of all the damage that's been done. Any one of those can be a strategic response. And what becomes a very strategic response is if most everything is dead, that you kind of pick the sprouts or the flowers that are coming up and hand that as a bouquet. That was an analogy that was used years ago when I was first learning MI, like that's a bouquet of change talk in the midst of a garden that's barely breathing right now. So that's a way to shine light on that is strategically responding. So I'm gonna weave that into the other analogy, but I'm gonna walk through this, this uh, decision tree that I developed as we're working on the motivation and competency assessment. I was, I'm such a visual person and I wanted to be able to make it more readily accessible for people to think about strategic responses. And what John really tries to bring to the forefront so often is we don't have to use just reflective listening because we at IFIOC tend to really train deeply on that so people develop that skill set because it is such uh, an important skill set to master to strategically respond with reflective listening. And there's nothing wrong with open-ended questions. So with this diagram that we have up, this decision tree that I developed to make it easier for people to understand, is there's um, the type of talk on the left-hand side. So we have sustained talk, change talk, and then kind of a, a little bit of both of sustained talk and change talk um, that could come up and then ways we can respond to it. So we'll just take the first one. And the language that somebody may give us is, I'm telling you, dieting just does not work for me. So that's what somebody can say. And when somebody says dieting just doesn't work for me, that's a sustained talk, status quo, frustration, that side of the equation. And we call that sustained talk or stuck talk. And what I wanted people to do when I was developing this decision tree was understand it's not that there's a right way to respond. It's that is there a strategy about what you're saying and why you're saying it? So when somebody says, I'm telling you dieting just does not work for me, even though they gave me sustained talk, I can ask a question to try to pull change talk out. So if they say dieting does not work for them, I can say, well, so tell me some things that have worked for you. So I can ask for change talk, even though they gave me sustained talk. I can reflect change talk, even though they only gave me sustained talk. So they said dieting just does not work for me. I can say, yeah, you know, and there's still part of you that wishes you could get a handle on your weight issues. That's what they would like to have. So even though they gave me that it doesn't work, I can reflect that they wish there was something that could help them get on top of what they're talking about. I could ask a question and get more of the sustained talk. Dieting just does not work for me. Well, why do you think it doesn't work for you? They're gonna give me more reasons why they think it doesn't work for them. Um, or I could reflect how they're feeling about it. Um, and so if they say dieting just doesn't work for me, I could reflect their stuck talk and say, you know what, you know that you're just not successful when you try to control your diet. So I can just be high empathy with that. It's not that any one of those four responses are right or wrong. It just means there's a strategy about why are you doing the one that you're doing. And what we know if it's an MI adherent conversation that 
it's not that you have to respond exactly right every time you hear a type of language. It just means that over the course of an MI-based conversation, we should be giving less airtime and oxygen to sustain talk. It's just going to titrate because of how much attention we give to it over time, unless the person needs to hang on to it, which means we need to hang in there longer. And over the course of the conversation, we should be giving more oxygen and airtime to change talk. So that, that's just the, the basic structure, and those are part of strategically responding. I just want to jump in there, too, to that point, Casey, is say, like, if, if you're especially intrigued by that, we have a whole class that's MI and evidence-based outcomes that gets into this with the MICA and really helps show the, the even more in-depth way of what we're talking about here and how critical it can be. Because I bring it up because I remember a conversation with Guy Andrell, um, an incredible person in the motivational interviewing network of trainers world that I just bow to. He's so aware, so humble, all these things. Amazing, man. Yes. Yeah. UK. Yeah. And, and he invited you over to do training on the mic of the UK. Anyways, and so we were in a conversation about strategically responding to uh, sustained talk. And like on this, this example, I'm telling you dieting just does not work for me. Um, and then the uh, kind of arm of sustained talk it can get a bad rep it can, in MI. It can get a stigma by people learning MI that sustained talk is bad and you should always avoid it. And there's a place to explore it possibly. When you're talking about someone that's suicidal or some really difficult situations like he was working with, then there's a time and place possibly to go into it strategically, not just sitting in it, not just lingering in it, not just haphazardly asking the question, but we dive much deeper into that in that uh, MI and evidence-based outcomes class because there might be a time where you, you ask particular types of questions that dig a little more into the sustained talk so you can then get past that in partnering together and, and or it might facilitate awareness inside the person to ask them, why do you think that is for yourself? There's times and places to do it. And that's what was so powerful for him uh, in the situation, the very difficult situations he works in and his, his group of people that maybe you go into sustained talk strategically with an awareness to eventually get back towards change talk and titrate sustained talk down. And it's something that, that is really, really important that I don't think gets talked about enough or if it does, we kind of talk about sustained talk being this bad thing. And I think it can be just important to put that on our radars as we keep going through. Hey, John and Tammy, you guys want me to give you another analogy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Based on exactly what John just said about why sustained talk is not a bad thing. You know, one of the things we wrote in one of the earliest versions of the MICA that we took out just because it doesn't always translate well with different languages, um, is MI is used in different countries and in different languages. The analogy that I used back then, and it, it was so apropos and exactly what John is talking about right now, that sustained talk is not a bad thing, is if you think about driving a clutch or a manual transmission in a car, the point of motivational interviewing is to get people out on the highway, to get into a, a stream of change talk and behavior change that they're trying to get towards, to get them to their ultimate destination. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna get there quicker if they're on the highway, right? Yeah. But you are not gonna put the pedal to the metal if you're coming off a ski mountain in the winter, um, you know, in the middle of a blizzard. We need to be very cautious about how we're getting down there for very good reason. Or if we were, 
unwise enough to rent a rental car in downtown Manhattan. Um, it doesn't mean we get to just floor it as soon as we pull out of the car rental agency lot. Like there are things we need to do. We want to get on the highway. We want to get in and move things. But what John's talking about is there's reasons we need to really respect that there's a car in front of us. We need to, we need to pay attention to that. So there's reasons why we have to go slower to get better engagement, but we are ultimately navigating to get out onto the freeway. So, and like John's saying with the sustained talk and strategically responding, is I can be out on the freeway and all of a sudden there's a car wreck in front of me. I don't get to just keep driving fast. I have to slow down and either see if I need to help out or move around that. Or a deer jumps in the middle of the freeway um, or the highway. Or there's a turn that comes up and there's the yellow sign with the, the black arrow that says you need to slow down to you know 55 miles an hour and you can't be going 70 here because you're going around a corner. That's downshifting into sustained talk, which just means that people can be talking about change and something comes up and, it's, and Tammy just says something like, you know what, but I, I've been making all these changes, but right now I'm so stressed financially about what's going on. I don't know if I can do this. I'm not mad about that. That's not bad language that Tammy says that. It just means that she needs to feel heard and understood or she's considering a reason why there might be stuckness to, to future change. There's nothing wrong with exploring that. I just don't want to spend the entire conversation in all the negative side of it. And when it feels like she feels heard and understood, I'm going to upshift into third gear and then back into fourth gear and get it back into fifth gear. And we're back on our way again. That is strategically responding. So there's reasons even throughout a conversation that we may need to downshift because the person has a reason to explain why they're stuck or they're, they're feeling, you know, that things aren't working the way that they need them to feel. So when we're doing that sustained talk response, it really is so people feel heard and understood. If they feel heard and understood, don't keep driving in first gear. You want to shift into second gear and shift into third gear and shift into fourth gear. We don't just stay in first gear and, and because you can actually feel the engine starting to rev and then you get frustrated and they get frustrated because it's like, my gosh, they keep reflecting how I'm feeling, but I'm ready to move forward with this. Mm -hmm. So you can feel we've got to get into second gear, get into third gear. This is all about strategically responding. And to that point, Casey, this is like when we're out on the open road and they're giving us, of course I want to, this is back on the sheet here, they're giving us change, like, of course I want to, I'd love to lose weight. Like, we're out on the open road, it's likely less strategic. We don't know for sure, but to go, how come you think you can't? You know, it's not that you inherently can't ask that question. It's not that saying, maybe that would be a sustained talk question. Another sustained talk question might be, or a sustained talk reflection would be, and that's been difficult for you in the past. It's just less likely to titrate all that down, like Casey was talking about, of titrate down, sustain talk. It's not that you couldn't ask very evidence-based communication or evidence kind of backed questions, like what is it within you that's preventing it? And then somehow problem solve around those barriers. That is possible, but it's just be careful when you're out on the open road and they're giving you lots of strong change talk and you bring up the sustained talk and dig into it. It's just be aware of that and how strategic you're doing versus just keeping with the change talk and instead responding with, well, what makes it important for you to lose weight or your health continues to be important to you or how do you see you go about doing that or all these other ways that we can keep the momentum rolling. And then lastly, I'll just say on the last bit of this uh, sheet to what Casey was saying, you John, always... let me, I want to dive in right there though real quick okay. and then I'll let you go to that next piece because yeah. this part of your talk and change talk. I want to put this in context from what John just said 
that partly what you're looking for, and this is why we still pay, we at IFIO still, still pay attention to stages of change, is I want you to feel the difference between why I would go one direction over the other with John. So John and I are having this conversation. He's saying he wants to lose weight or he wants to get healthy. And now let's take it as if I don't know John at all. And, um, and he's talking to me because his doctor just said, you need to lose 50 to 60 pounds or you're not getting the surgery. And he's angry and frustrated. And he comes into me. I don't know him while he goes, well, you know, of course I want to. I'd love to lose weight. Well, I'm not going to just push on the change talk side because that could, he's more in pre-contemplation, maybe in early contemplation, that could generate more resistance from him. Um, and if I said, well, what makes it important for you to lose weight? So I'm trying to ask change talk when he says that I could get, it's not important for me to lose weight. It's my damn doctors who's telling me I have to lose the weight. You know, I'm not stupid. I probably need to. And I'm like, well, but your health continues to be important for you. Well, what are you talking about? Of course, my health is important to me, but I don't know why he referred me in the first. So as I'm trying to pull change talk, I'm actually generating negative responses because it's not where John's brain is at that moment in time. He's still frustrated with the referral in the first place. Mm -hmm. Now, we'll take the exact same language, but we're gonna change his stage of change. John and I have known each other for years and years, and he's been kind of wrestling with this issue, and um, he and I are sitting there having dinner and, and having a drink, and, he's, and he's, his defenses are going down a little bit, and he goes, you know what, Casey, I, I'd love to lose weight. I've been thinking about this for probably six or seven months now, and I really am at a place where I want to, I'd like to lose weight. Now I can say, John, what have you been thinking about? What makes it so important for you to lose weight? I'm going to listen more change talk. If he's more angry and resistant where he first came in because he was referred and told he had to go do it, I may say something like, you know what? And losing weight has been difficult for you in the past. And he's like, yes, it's been difficult. It's not something I want to think about right now. So when he's in his more resistant state, I might want to explore the sustained talk more. Mm -hmm. So you can feel that how you respond really does coincide with where is this person's brain in their change process. If they're not combative, I'm going to lead a little bit more towards the change talk side. If they're more angry, frustrated, or, or reluctant to go there, I might explore the reasons why they're legitimately stuck. Now listen to this. So John's angry. He's been referred. Of course, I want to, of course I'd love to lose weight, um, but my doctor's want to refer me here. Yeah, and, and the whole weight thing's been an issue for you in the past, and it's not something you want to talk about. You're right. I don't want to talk about it. And, and there's part of that just wishes people wouldn't have concerns because you don't have concerns around it. No, I do have concerns. That's why I'd like to lose weight at some point. Um, well, what are some of those things that have made it important for you to want to lose weight? So I can do two or three reflections of empathy so he feels heard and understood, and then I listen for the language he gives me, and I can strategically respond to that. So I just wanted to walk through that, that this response to change talk, like John was just talking about, it, can, it doesn't mean that going to sustain talk is wrong. It can actually be the smartest thing to do strategically. And I think it makes even more sense now when you hear what John's going to talk about with the change talk and sustain talk in the same statement. Well, it's just, it's, it doesn't, I don't need to go deep into it. I just want to honor that it's that's on the page for those that are listening. I'll, I'll verbalize it, but it's exactly what you were just saying, which is you go with one or the other strategically. And if you're given both, now you have that many more options to, to work with it. And that when you have a three-dimensional human in front of you, especially if you have body language, but if you're over the phone, you still have tone and you can hear things, it's gonna make it easier than just these things on a sheet of paper. That's why it was so helpful to have Casey walk through what he just walked through with the tone and the stage of change. But when you're given equally this type of talk, you have a decision point to make 
based off of the amount of engagement and how deeply focused you are and or are you on the way to preparation and plan and just being clear of where are you at in a conversation of engage focus and plan and where is where are they at with their language and when they're giving you change talk and sustain talk like this you can go with either but why are you going there and that's what we're trying to get into why would you go there and what does it garner so for example I would love to lose weight, but no diet I have ever been on has worked. The first part is change talk, which I would love to lose weight. Then the second part is sustain talk, but no diet I have ever been on has worked. So you get that ability to go, hmm, what do I focus on? Because like Casey said earlier, what you pay attention to, you will likely hear more of in more or less that. So what am I gonna pay attention to? Maybe because I have an assessment to do, which isn't MI, but I can at least create engagement while I do this assessment, I can go, okay, so you've tried a variety of diets. I can reinforce the sustain talk to go explore the sustain talk because that's where I'm strategically guiding it. Whereas if I'm really focused just on behavior change, MI, and I'm given change talk, it's likely that the fact that they're saying, I would love to lose weight you would try to dive into that. You would try to dig into it like Casey demonstrated at some point. It doesn't mean you have to right away, but if that came up on the radar, flag that if you're not gonna pay attention to it now, because that's important to bring back into the conversation. If you missed it and you didn't hear it, that is a missed opportunity as we talk about in the MICA. That is a timestamp in the audio that we would be listening to and it would be those moments of like, you know what, if you wanted to, you could eventually bring it back to how they were saying, I would love to lose weight because it seems like that kind of got lost in all the other stuff that, that was being paid attention to. So it's those sorts of things that would get you get coaching around with the MICA that I wanted to point out that we really try to help people with the specificity of what happens in your interaction um, that you can you know get feedback on. And so we can read through uh, the rest of these but in terms of change talk and sustain talk, you have a choice and why are you making that choice is the last point I wanted to make. Is there anything yeah. else with this? Yeah. yeah. Well, no, not necessarily with this, but I think it's a perfect segue to kind of move towards wrapping up a little bit yeah. is what I think of, and it, it, John, I finally am going to talk about the analogy that you, <laughs> that you brought up a while ago. Come <laughs> well, um, in somewhere. I knew it was going to come. It's a perfect segue for these strategically responding, because especially when you're talking about the MICA and how we code this and we can pay attention to it and call out and timestamp, because we are looking for strategic responses. And it was such a beautiful thing that, um, because Tracy used picture words like I like to use, and she said, what's so hard about this, this concept about strategically responding to me, what was hard for her about it, she said, it feels like I'm standing in a stream and the person I'm talking to is standing in the stream facing me and they're, they're, they're spewing all this language out, which is like the water flying at me and I'm supposed to grab the right fish and there's all these fish flying by and I can barely stand up in the stream because I'm trying to practice MI and I don't know what fish to, to pick up. And what she would say is, you know, all these fish are going by and I feel like I lean down, I pick up the fish to reflect back and it's like a sucker fish. Like I grabbed the wrong one. Um, and she said, so I drop it back in the water and, and I'm supposed to keep this conversation going like it's a real dialogue. Um, and I, at the same time, I'm trying to pay attention to all these fish and I can barely tell them apart. And I'm supposed to grab the right one. And that's how it can feel. What John and I, I remember this in, um, we talked about this quite a bit, but it, it came into kind of this perfect moment when John and I were training in Poland uh, in 2019, we we're training on the MICA. And 
they ended up giving us this, this little magnet with these uh, oh, yeah. people catching a, a fish and I've still got this magnet. And what we're telling people is as you get better, the, the gauging on your net is going to get tighter. In the beginning, just catch the big fish. Don't worry about all the different little fish you can catch. The better you get at MI, the more you want to catch some of the smaller fish too. But as you're first learning MI, what do you think that they're feeling right now? What do you think they've been feeling based on what they've been talking about for five minutes? So you don't have to pick every little piece out and respond to it strategically. It's just basically how do they feel? That's going to be a big fish for empathy, responding to their resistance talk or their sustain talk. Or as your brain's listening to them going, just in general, all things being equal, if you could wave a magic wand, what do you think they want? And if you can conceptualize it, you've caught a big fish. That's what they're looking at. As you get better and better at kind of netting the fish, your gauges on your net are going to start getting smaller. You can catch smaller fish and smaller fish. So in the beginning, just be thinking, I can catch some of these most obvious things about how they feel or what they want. And the more skilled you get, the more you practice, the more you can catch more nuances in types of talk. And um, even though they're saying sustained talk, I can actually extract change talk from that. Um, and I can start getting these more minute details in it. And so with this whole fish analogy is, yeah, in the beginning, just think I can catch a big fish and little by little, I'm gonna catch some of the ones that, are, that I don't always see as readily. And that's totally fine for strategically responding. Well, and I know we're wrapping it up to, to the end here. It's, it's also this idea that when you get into more nuance with MI, you can really get that much more creative and that can be interesting if you're the MI person doing a lot of MI and that makes your, your, your work and things more interesting. But not only that, you can be that much more impactful to someone really transitioning into be who they want to be, not because you're trying to manipulate someone or get commitment talk, like a lot of people that miss the spirit and are so focused on the types of talk, they miss the whole spirit of MI. So then they get frustrated if someone doesn't follow through and they said, I will. And they, they get so focused on the mechanics, they lose that this is in couched in the spirit of MI. And we didn't really talk about that. I just wanted to mention that, that you can pay attention to types of talk overly technically and lose actual curiosity and lose actual writing reflex and equipoise because you're so technical. And I know I've fallen into that trap at different times. And the, the last thing I'll say too with this is to not stigmatize the type of talk that we all, in case you train this with me, we all have sustained talk about something. Is that bad? No, I might have sustained talk about something that's very healthy for me, right? It's just why I do what I do. It's a reason to keep doing things the same. That's not necessarily unhealthy, right? And so it's one of these ideas to get away from the stigma of it. And then lastly, based off of a uh, training we were just doing for, for streaming, values aren't necessarily one kind of talk. I just wanted to put that on our radar that I need, I should, I could, I ought to, I want to, I need to, I have to. That's the, that kind of language for change. But values, someone might have a value of connection, which is why they're staying in a relationship that has domestic violence, right? That's one value. But then they also have this other competing value for change around independence or the health of their child and the impact it's having on them. And so there might be values that are competing. And I simply bring that up because in other podcasts, we expand on values and focus mountain, and that can be very powerful for change. 
but that a value doesn't necessarily mean it's one type of talk. It's when you can listen from that place of acceptance and their values, and then you put your awareness of the types of talk on it, that's where you can especially facilitate deep, powerful change, not just kind of surface level, oh, you want, okay, how's that gonna happen? But much deeper of who they want to be based off of their values. I think that's one last thing to uh, just highlight is that sometimes people get values confused with change talk and sustain talk. So that was the last two cents I wanted to throw in there. Is there anything else that you guys can think of as we're coming to the end? Uh, I'll, ju I'll just reinforce quickly. Like John said, what you're doing is you're assessing language, you're not judging it. Mm -hmm. uh, so just because we assess it, sustain talk, we're not judging it's a bad thing. Because we're assessing change talk, it doesn't mean that it's like, oh, it's again, that whole thing about we're just listening for language and the more we can assess it, the easier it is to intervene appropriately. When you have a good assessment, you can intervene more effectively. Perfect. Well, thank you guys for answering. And as always, viewers, thank you for listening and being a part of this. Um, you can always send topic suggestions in to us. And we'd be happy to, you know, talk about them on our podcast here. You can send them to myself, Tammy.Calais, T-A-M-I dot C-A-L-A-I-S at ifioc.com. Um, but otherwise, we hope everyone has a wonderful day because we are truly trying to provide the communication solution that we hope to change your world, but also the world. Thank you. Take care. Thanks.